الجزيرة بودكاست Mercenaries are being used more widely in conflicts despite a UN convention banning them. The Russian Wagner Group is involved in some of the most intense fighting in Ukraine. During the 2003 Iraq war, the former Blackwater Group supported US forces. Both organizations have been accused of widespread human rights abuses. So, why are states increasingly using mercenary forces and who's accountable for their actions? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now for today's show in Copenhagen, Soka McLeod, chair of the UN Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. In Oxford, Samuel Romani, associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and author of Putin's War on Ukraine. And in Amsterdam, Marika de Hoon, assistant professor in international criminal law at the University of Amsterdam and a specialist on crimes of aggression. Thank you all for joining us on Inside Story. A very warm welcome. Samuel, let me start with you. Uh, Russia has suffered repeated setbacks on the battlefield in Ukraine recently, but it appears that with the help of mercenaries from the Wagner Group, it could be about to make some gains. Talk to us first about the role of Wagner in the conflict in Ukraine. How extensive is it and how active are these mercenaries? So the Wagner Group is now the largest contingent that has ever been. According to U.S. estimates, it's got around 50,000 people. 40,000 of them are convicts and prisoners who Prigozhin has lifted out of the prisons in exchange for amnesty and a salary, and 10,000 of them are private military contractors. Initially, the Wagner Group was tasked with really the role of being a saboteur and a disruptor. It was involved, for example, in some of the death squads that were sent to kill Vladimir Zelensky. And, but in more recent months, it's played a much more active role on the front lines first in the campaign in Luhansk, and now especially in the battle for Bakhmut and Solidar. And if Russia has won in Solidar, which the Ukrainians are disputing, it is the first victory in which the Wagner Group is really solely responsible for it. And now the Wagner Group will be able to get access to gypsum and salt mines that are very lucrative and could potentially help finance the $100 million a month that Prigozhin is spending on financing these mercenaries going forward. Right. So its role is elevated dramatically, and its influence is at its highest level ever. Speaking of financing these mercenaries, uh, Samuel, Russia has consistently denied that Wagner has any connection with the state, but the, these private military companies are not allowed in Russia. So, you know, who funds the group and, and does it effectively function as a branch of the Kremlin? Well, definitely. Private military companies have been banned in Russia for a long time. And even Yevgeny Prigozhin himself was actually suing the European Union and suing uh, various journalists for saying that he had anything to do with the Wagner Group. Of course, until the Wagner Group became a much more powerful force, and it was seen as the most effective fighting unit in the Russian army. Mm. And now he's taking credit for their successes as of September. But financing is coming from a variety of sources. It's coming from uh, minerals and extractives. So we're seeing oil in Libya, the control over the three major oil ports, uh, gold they're trying to get out of Mali, diamonds in Central African Republic, as well as uh, contracts with uh, governments and with uh, partners that they're working with, like Khalifa Haftar in Libya mm -hmm. or Tuadera in CAR. So it really comes from those sources, and it's effectively self-sustaining. So it functions as an alternative security organ, but Russia does not have to likely devote its defense budget to financing their activities. And it can actually make revenue for the Russian state, too. 
Interesting. Marika Dehoun, it's not just Russia and the Wagner Group, of course. Uh, the widespread outsourcing of military and security functions has become a major phenomenon in recent years. Why are states, do you think, increasingly contracting uh, out to, pri to, to the private sector? A and what is their legal status of these private companies under international law and under the laws of armed conflict? Well, states do this for many different reasons. And one particular reason is uh, that Russia is using this is plausible deniability. Um, so by using them, Russia is saying we are not involved uh, or this is just a normal contract that we've um, closed uh, with, for instance, the Central African Republic and therefore nothing illegal is going on. Um, and international law struggles, international humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict struggles with how to really determine and categorize these types of people because on the one hand you have uh, categories such as like combatants like regular armed forces for instance mm -hmm. but also mercenaries which um, they're mostly prohibited and then civilians but but these private military contractors they kind of escape a lot of these categories that were really, I suppose these private military companies are often particularly designed to escape these categories. Mm. But in, are they legitimate? Essence... Sorry? Are they legitimate? Well, so they fight very often in violation of the laws of armed conflict. So they commit war crimes. So that is very much illegal, notwithstanding which category there is. But it, it shows some sort of like ability to de deny as if Russia's state is involved. Mm. So if they are saying they're volunteers and if Russia is saying, oh, they're not part of us, it seems almost it's credible that Russia isn't part of it. But how is it possible then that, for instance, the Wagner Group gets 40,000 detainees released, pardoned uh, from Russian prisons to fight? Mm. They're obviously very close links. Yeah. Uh, Soka, your thoughts about this, just how dangerous are these mercenaries and their growing use around the globe and, and what are the implications of their presence in conflict zones, whether it's Ukraine, Central African Republic? Well, the working group on the use of mercenaries is extremely concerned about the increasing use of mercenaries and mercenary type actors in armed conflicts in a variety of different countries around the world. Um, it's not just the, the Wagner group, although that's the one that's been getting a lot of attention, mm -hmm. but we've seen uh, the Sadat group um, out of uh, Turkey, for example, being involved in the, the recruitment and, and training of, of mercenaries for, for different armed conflicts. Now, the, the, the difficulty with these types of actors is that um, when they are involved in armed conflicts, they prolong those conflicts they destabilize uh, peace processes, they destabilize countries and uh, regions, and they violate human rights on, on a very wide scale. Yeah. And so of course, it, it, this is hugely problematic for, for civilian populations. Mm. So we've seen reports of mass killings, of torture, of sexual and gender-based violence, um, forced disappearances, looting, and, and war crimes. So the indiscriminate targeting of, of civilians. Mm. Um, so they they bring a level of violence that that um, um, isn't always, you know, of course, armed conflict is is violent, but right. but mercenaries take it to a whole new level, yeah. and then of course it's very difficult to hold them to account hmm. for these uh, cities. Pro problematic, you say, Soka, and yet it would it would appear that states are increasingly engaging these mercenaries to further the, their foreign policy objectives. 
that would that would seem to be the 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 case. Um, we've certainly seen um, their their use in um, the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. We've seen their use in Libya, in Central African Republic, in in Syria, and in multiple multiple armed uh, armed conflicts. And this is a new a new development. We're we're seeing a shift from the you know the traditional idea of the 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 mercenary. Um, you know the mercenary was historically you know the white guys who went from the global north to the global south. Right. They weren't very large in numbers. Um, and what we're seeing, what we've already heard, is that, that we're seeing significantly larger numbers of them being recruited. And there's another layer of, of, of um, problem or complexity there because they're being recruited from um, other armed conflict uh conflict-affected countries. So, for example, we've seen large numbers of, of people being recruited as mercenaries right. from Syria. And, and sometimes it's because um, they have had experience as fighters for IS, for example, mm. or it's because they are being coerced into to becoming mercenaries for economic uh, for economic reasons. So we're not just seeing their 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 impacts on ongoing armed conflicts where they're being deployed. Mm. We're seeing them um, having impacts in in countries where there are already um, armed on con armed conflicts right. ongoing, and that's hugely problematic. Samuel Romani, uh, why do you think we're seeing the, the re-emergence of these security group, these so-called security groups globally, especially after all the bad publicity after the Iraq war where they were accused of war crimes and so on? And, and talk to us also about the objectives of, of the states who hire these mercenaries. What, what is it that they are uh, wanting to achieve by using these uh, groups? Well, the interesting thing was that the fact that Blackwater and some of the controversies that were associated in the Iraq war actually received a lot of backlash in the collective non-West. Russian and Chinese state media outlets basically launched uh, information campaigns and diatribes against Blackwater. But then, ironically, they proceeded to see the value of using mercenaries for their own purposes. So mercenaries are used for a variety of functions. The first is to carry out deniable operations, especially in the counterinsurgency sphere. Uh -huh. That's what we've seen Russia try to carry out abortively in Mozambique and more successfully in Central African Republic. And now they're trying to do it in Mali. Another thing that they're using mercenaries for is the guardianship of stationary assets, whether it be military bases, like the Russians have mercenaries in Benghazi, or they use mercenaries to uh, guard uh, gold mines, like in Sudan, for example. The uh -huh. Chinese are also using private security companies to guard uh, elements of their Belt and Road Initiative, so guardianship. And the third is the use of mercenaries for some kind of logistical training and tactical role, effectively reprising the role of Soviet-era tactical advisors during the Cold War and training local forces how to use certain types of air defense systems, right. how to use certain types of missiles. So those are the main reasons and main uses of mercenaries in global conflicts today. Uh, Marika, as uh, Samuel highlighted there, it's not just state actors who are using these mercenaries, also non-state actors, armed groups, multinational companies um, that use these so-called private security firms. But under what norms do they operate and, and who is it that monitors their activities ultimately? 
Well, no one really monitors their activities, and that's one of the big problems. And it really depends on what they do, how lawful it is. When they engage in hostilities, when they when they do more than just guard a door or guard an entrance, for instance, or guard a ship, when they actually start using force, then they're engaging suddenly in hostilities. And if it's an armed conflict, they need to abide then by the laws of armed conflict. And this is what we see widely occurring, particularly with Wagner Group now, uh, but also previously with Blackwater and so forth, uh, that they're actually um, torturing, murdering, and so forth. And then what do you do? Um, because it's it's historically it's been really difficult in armed conflicts or with well-organized groups to hold them to account. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, how do you get, how do you obtain them? But also um, how do you investigate who exactly was responsible exactly for what? Uh, and this is now, I think, a new challenge where because we see on such a large scale these crimes being uh, occurring mm. that it must draw the attention of the international criminal court also to look at the leadership of these groups yeah asoka your thoughts about this how do you hold these groups accountable then well, can I say for one thing, first of all, um, the Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries uh, does have a role in monitoring the activities of, of mercenaries. That's that's part of our mandate. But I think we also have to be, be very precise here in terms of what we're talking about, because the term mercenary does have an international legal definition. Okay. And that is... Um, an actor, an individual or an actor who has been recruited specifically to participate in hostilities mm -hmm. and that they do actually participate in the in the hostilities. Um, and they're not a national of the, the, the of a party to the to the armed conflict and they've not been sent on official. So what's the difference business. then uh, between a mercenary and a foreign fighter? Well, that's 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 perhaps a different a, a different question. But if we if if we think about um, um, you know, private security companies or private military security companies or private military companies, none of that those terms have any legal definition. Mercenary does have a specific legal definition, mm -hmm. and it's perhaps helpful to think about these actors on a on a spectrum. Right. Um, so. The, you know, the, 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 um, the laws of armed conflict don't criminalize um, uh, mercenaries. The UN Convention on Mercenarism does, in fact, criminalize the recruitment, the training, the financing and the deployment of, um, of mercenaries. Some individual states do have um, criminal laws that prohibit prohibit mercenaries, even if the state is not a party to the to the the, the treaty. Mm -hmm. But we have a we have a, a we have a situation where it's actually very, very difficult. As I said earlier, we've, it's very difficult to hold these actors to account. OK, um, let me ask I, Marika a, a point about this. Uh, you mentioned the example of the Central African Republic there, Soka. But more recently, Marika, the Wagner Group, for example, was invited by the military government in Mali to provide security against armed groups. And it's the arrival of, you know, the, the, the Wagner group that influenced France's decision to withdraw in 2021 to pull its troops out of the country. Who then, you know, in, in the case of Mali, for example, if crimes are committed by uh, members of, of the Wagner group, who's then is responsible and liable for these abuses? Is it the Malian government, which invited the group under international law? Or, or I mean, who do, who do you turn to? 
Yes and yes, all of them. Mm -hmm. So it is obviously the individuals that are committing crimes. Right. It is their commanders, and most particularly, of course, uh, Prigozhin, like the 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 leader of the Wagner Group, uh, and he might be very interesting also for the International Criminal Court to actually look at. But it's also uh, and there's also sanction regimes against a lot of members of the Wagner Group and also corporations that work with them and support them. And then there's also state responsibility. Um, so there are also possibilities for. Uh, uh, litigation going on at the European Court of Human Rights and also at the International Court of Justice against Russia for not just the crimes that they are committing themselves, but also how they are really tied to all sorts of volunteers and little green men uh, that are walking about. And there is the courts don't really look at whether they deny that, but really the factual relationships. So if the court finds that indeed there are strong ties between Russia and these individuals that are committing crimes and that Russia thereby really is attributable, then the Russian state is also held to account. All right, Samuel Romani, your thoughts about this on the issue of accountability? Well, I think it should certainly be the individuals who are carrying out the crimes as well as the governments that are sp sponsoring and are working with them on those crimes. And it'll be interesting to see whether there are major tribunals that will be held for some of the crimes that have been taking place inside Mali and the Central African Republic. Mm -hmm. In Mali, for example, you've seen the UNTA be at fault, but also the Wagner Group would be directly responsible for actions like the Moore massacre, which killed almost as many people as Bucha back at the same time in March and April. Same thing in Central African Republic, where we've seen a systematic policy of rape, uh, uh, torture, and massacres, particularly on the outskirts of Bangui and other parts of the country, being carried out by the Wagner Group, often in conjunction with the armed forces. So I think the prosecutions will probably go towards both, and those two cases will be interesting litmus tests for how accountability is given. Yeah, but you're talking here about international prosecution, right? Um, Soka, I want to ask you about the, the ICC here, the role of the ICC. If, let's say, when Wagner commits crimes in Ukraine, uh, which has, you know, in territories where the ICC has jurisdiction, like Ukraine, for example, then what is the legal process? And then what about a, a country like the United States, which, uh, which is not party to, to the ICC? How then do you go about, uh, you know, uh, uh, holding, holding the group accountable? Well, I can't. I can't speak on the the, the specific uh, situation of Ukraine and, and the ICC. But what I what I can say is that um, we we've seen countries like Central African Republic set up mechanisms to try to to hold these actors to account. But the problem is is, is that. Um, groups like Wagner are becoming integrated into the, the fabric of, of, of society of, of countries like Central African Republic, which is making it very, very difficult for the victims and their families to report on, on human rights um, abuses and, and atrocities. Um, they're either uh, they, they're scared to to do so. They're being intimidated. They're being harassed. We've seen um, attacks against human rights defenders and and journalists. So the the space to to try and report these types of um, atrocities is is shrinking. It makes it it makes it very very difficult. Mm. Um, so. You know, even at the, at the national level, it's it's hard to get any kind of accountability. Um, the working group um, uh, issued um, um, an allegation letter in relation to um, the, uh, the the Russian uh, government because we received information that um, Russian nationals had been involved in the the torture and, and murder of a Syrian national in Syria, uh -huh. and there was an attempt to. Try 
to bring the, the claim in the Russian courts. That didn't succeed. There were multiple obstacles and delays right. put in, 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 in the way of, the, of, of that claim. Now, one other option would be for um, uh, countries uh, around the world to exercise universal jurisdiction okay. for some of the most serious crimes that are being committed. Mm -hmm. So that you know, we've seen some countries um, increasingly starting uh, to do that and saying that some crimes are so severe, they're so heinous mm. that in fact they should be um, they should be prosecuted okay. um, outside of the the place they took place. All right, let me ask you, Marika, about the options there. Uh, as uh, Sorka said, it's hard to get accountability very often at the national level. The ICC very often goes after the big fish, not the foot soldiers, you know, on the field who are committing these crimes. So what, what is then uh, the, the options? What are the options, the legal options? Yes. So the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over a limited amount of crimes, the worst of worst crimes. And war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide and crime of aggression. What Wagner is doing is, via, is, is war crimes all over the place in, ever, in a lot of different countries. But the International Criminal Court can only exercise jurisdiction when it has jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And that is limited to crimes being committed on a territory uh, where uh, the ICC has jurisdiction. And it has that over Ukraine, but also over Central African Republic and Mali. And so there are some types some possibilities here for the International Criminal Court. It would then indeed look at the big fish, those most responsible. So think particularly on Prigozhin. And then indeed, um, as was just discussed, there's also universal jurisdiction. Uh, so other states, wherever uh, members of Wagner Group that are being suspected of having committed uh, war crimes uh, occur, they might also be prosecuted in other countries. So all of the Wagner people that are identified in, in being uh, allegedly having committed war crimes can therefore risk danger uh, when they are traveling outside of um, uh, their safe uh, uh, harboring states uh, for prosecution. And also importantly is Ukraine itself. Ukraine, where a lot of these crimes are being committed, is very active right. uh, in prosecuting war crimes. Okay. And so what Ukraine can also do is to prosecute in absentia. Okay. So they are, are actually prosecuting people even if they don't have them detained. Okay, thank you all very much for a very, very interesting discussion. Samuel Romani, Marika Dahoun, Sorka McLeod. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fintan Monaghan, Fungi Nguyen and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Nanda Kishore. The program was edited by Anirbar Sakar, Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode.